So I work with a lot of people here at the university, and I get to know them, I learn about what they do, about their families, and then every so often I'm surprised to find out their incredible backstory. And that's what happened with Dr. Edwin Wong, a professor of biological and environmental sciences who was recently recognized with the Provost Teaching Award. He gave a talk at the fall opening meeting and got two standing ovations. And you will hear from his visit today a story you just don't hear too many other places. I'm Paul Steinmetz, and this is WCSU 411, the podcast that tells the inside story about Western Connecticut State University. Dr. Wong, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Paul, for having me. It's my pleasure. Uh, as a recipient of the Provost Teaching Award, you're invited to give a talk at the beginning of the fall semester, the opening meeting, as we call it here. And you chose to talk about some of your background, which explained some about how you got here to WestCon and what role education played in that. And uh, I was there at the talk. It really started with an auto accident your father had, right? Right, that's right. Something's going on in the background, Pete. Yeah, we can't hear you either. Yeah, sorry. It wasn't. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Okay. That's okay. So that's all right. So we'll. I'll just report, repeat the part, the question, or the lead-in about the accident your dad had, right? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So right. That's. Um, it's a story that's been told many times in our family as we got passed down to the grandkids as well as ha about how grandfather um, met mom, met grand grandmother. So how my father met my mother. Right. And it was simply through a, a traffic accident. As, uh, as I recounted at the, uh, the meeting with the faculty, my father was, uh, they were both in high school. My father was just riding his bicycle to school that day bus was in the way. He didn't see a car coming around his blind spot, and he got hit by the car. And it actually ended up stopped on top of his body, and he told us the story of how passerbys ran over it, and literally a bunch of them pushed the car off his body, and um, he, was, he wondered whether or not he would ever be able to walk again, mm. because he was pretty much paralyzed below the waist. And since my uh, since he came from the countryside. This was uh, in China. This is in China, yes. I should back up and tell, talk about that because um, he, he grew up as a, uh, a, a, he calls it a country boy. I guess that's uh, the rural sections outside the, the big cities. Um, and this was outside Canton, which is now, of course, uh, in modern Chinese we call it Guangzhou. Mm. Guang, yeah, Guangzhou, uh, which is the capital city of Guangdong province. It's basically where all the Cantonese people come from. So we, we're probably more familiar with the word uh, Canton and Cantonese. Mm -hmm. um, he went to the high school, the big high school in the city, and uh, they actually speak a, a slightly different dialect. One of the things, of course, about China, and, and many people know about this, is that there literally are hundreds of different dialects. So you could go, he, he often told me that you could go over the hill and the next set of villages over the hill spoke a slightly different dialect than the one they did. I didn't realize that. It could be that close. Yeah. And so, so there could be – and this is, of course, one of the challenges uh, towards uniting China for probably thousands of years is that 
every little region had its own little version of the language, which made it hard to unite people. So when he went to the high school, he, he did know the, you know, the uh, main dialect, but he also had his own little regional dialect. And uh, when the teachers asked for classmates who could go visit him in the hospital, they were looking for students who knew the regional dialect, mm. the country dialect. And it just so happened that my mother um, did know that, sorry, my, at that time it was my future mother, did know that dialect. And so she volunteered to go to visit this, uh, this classmate of hers that was injured and was in the hospital. And so, she was kind of a star at the high school, right? Right. She was, uh, she was actually the uh, star athlete in the women's track and field team. She told me that she used to throw, throw discus, javelin. Uh, she was on the rowing team. Mm. She did all kinds of stuff like that. And my father said his, his main pastime was playing pool. So uh, he wasn't. They I never would have met. Otherwise. I probably not. You know, they probably uh. wouldn't have met. Uh, he wasn't uh, really a, a, a sporty sports type of person. Um, but but in the hospital, um, she went. She was able to not only uh, converse with him in his regional dialect, but also help my grandmother, my father's mother, to be able to talk to the doctors because mm. basically they're. Slightly different languages there between the physicians in Canton and the and her language out in the countryside. So she served as a translator, and so she had to come pretty often to mm. help translate for them. Uh, and, and and so that that time together, you know, led to one thing or another, and eventually they kind of fell in love, and uh, yeah, became high school sweethearts. Mm -hmm. That's a very nice story. And then they had to. Um well, this was uh, just before uh, war broke out, uh, the yeah, World yeah, War. So this is actually right at the end of World War II. Hmm. Um, yeah, so that's another issue. I mean, they, these, they both grew up during the war. They were children of the war. Um, and, you know, right after the Second World War ended, there was great turmoil in China because now we had w different factions, uh, the, the nationalists versus the communists, and they're all vying for power there in China. And so they, they had to, going through high school, they had to live through that as well. And eventually when the communists finally did uh, assume power, they realized that uh, things were getting difficult, right? As I as I'd mentioned in my speech, uh, they had started to close down institutions. They were, they were arresting people. They were closing borders to mm -hmm. the outside. And they made a pact together that they would flee to uh, British Hong Kong and hoped that they would find each other again. You know, and so my father did leave first. Uh, my m mother was still trying to help other relatives get out. Uh, in fact, she actually went out, then came back in to get people, and then went out a second time. Wow. And that's when she had to disguise herself as a, as a, uh, in a soldier uniform to be able to get across the border. Mm. <laughs> so it's hard to imagine now, right? For uh, the rest of us uh, living in this society, having to go through that, yeah, and do it twice. Yeah, I mean, and and it's it just it just whenever I think about the refugees that of today's world mm -hmm. and all these different areas of conflict in our world, you know, I mean, I think about my mother going through you know similar types of circumstances where the their world was in great turmoil and 
people were trying to flee and people were being trapped, and it was just uh, very, you know, very challenging for them. A lot of people didn't make it out of China yeah. either. Yeah, in fact, my, uh, my mother and her younger brother got out, but her two sisters never did. Mm. And so they remained, and they were, you know, they remained under communist rule until um, 1980, I think, when they were, we were finally able to petition for their um, exit from China and bring them over here. So I had a whole set of cousins that I had never met before, and aunts and, and uncles, and uh, that was quite a celebration when we finally met them at the airport in, in, uh, in Washington, D.C., and welcomed them to America. Yeah. That is something. Yeah. And your parents did meet in Hong Kong. They connected again. They, they found each other. They got married. And, uh, yeah, the, the startling story is, you know, after finding each other again, then they were separated again because mm -hmm. my father was able to leave for America since, my, since his parents, my, my, my paternal grandparents, uh, were already here in the States. They had, a, uh, they had been living here for a number of years. They had a Chinese restaurant. In, in Washington, D.C., and so they were able to, uh, you know, I think petition for him to come over uh, right away, but my mother, due to whatever <laughs> immigration uh, rules there were back then, she could not come over for a while, uh, and so, so really she had to stay in Hong Kong for two whole years mm. Before she was able to come back over and rejoin her husband, whom she had pretty much just married the day before he left. Right. It, did she work, or did she have? Was she living with family? I think there she? were. Yeah, I think there were friends and family that were in Hong Kong that she stayed with. Mm. Um, it's. It's. She just mentioned being very fr frightened about whether or not she would ever be able to see her husband again. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, again, this is a time of great uncertainty. And there were no, you know, certain, yeah, there was no guarantee that she would really be allowed into America. So it was, uh, it was pretty frightening for her. And, and, there, and during that time, actually, my father, one of the things that helped my mother come over was that my father um, joined the Army, became a United States uh, Army soldier, and that helped uh, her status because hmm. that enabled uh, her to, I think her paperwork to be a little bit more expedited and for her to be able to come over. Mm -hmm. Who knows if he hadn't gone into the Army, if she might have been there in, in Hong Kong longer. Right. And he probably yeah. wasn't a citizen, U.S. citizen yet, when he became joined the Army, right? Um, yeah, I don't think so, right, at that point, yeah. Hmm. And uh, they, she got over here and... Um, as you said, your dad was assigned as a cook because uh, the Army thought everybody from China must be good at uh, running a restaurant, right? That's, uh, yeah, well, that, I mean, I think the perception is, but, but in some sense, I mean, that sounds like a stereotype, but really a lot of the Chinese who came over, you know, even in the 1800s, they, they didn't, it was hard to find meaningful work, and one of the things that they, they could do, of course, was do things like start restaurants. I mean, you, you wonder, you know, you hear about Chinese restaurants, Chinese laundries, et cetera, but these people found a, a service that they could fill within society mm -hmm. that had a market, and 
they did it. You know, they, they would start these businesses because people would, would want to eat. They do, they need to be fed mm -hmm. and we'll, we'll feed them. They need to have their clothes clean. Okay. We'll start a business where we can clean their clothes. Mm -hmm. um, so if you don't have access to um, higher level jobs, you fill these service roles, right? And, and you'll have plenty of work to do and, and uh, lots of people coming your way. Right. So, yeah. Do you have a sense of what it was like for a Chinese immigrants at that time? It was the 19, late 1940s, early 50s. Yeah. That, um, uh, was it, was there still, I mean, there had been a huge anti-Chinese right. feeling in the country, in this country, mm -hmm. for a long time. Right. The Chinese Exclusion Act, of course, was enacted back in the 1800s, limited not just the number of men that could come in, but pretty much sort of excluded women at all from coming mm -hmm. in because they didn't want families to start, right? We don't want them breeding here. Right. So, uh, but, but World War II did change things a bit because, again, the, uh, because we were allied with China in the war against Japan, mm -hmm. that changed a lot of things. In fact, there were a couple of, I can't remember the exact names of these, these um, uh, uh, laws that were enacted, but they they changed the uh, the immigration policies slightly before the Exclusion Act was completely abolished. Uh, and I think that was in the I think it was in the uh, historians can correct me. It was somewhere in the 60s, I think, or mm. 50s when it was finally abolished. But there were a few other amendments that had changed and, and relaxed the mm. immigration policies. So it was a little bit better. But my father still tells me about remembering times when. Um, he went certain places and they said no Chinese allowed or whites only. So mm. he was still coming at a time when there were obvious signs of you know, racial prejudice. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were in Washington, D.C. And they were in Washington, D.C., yeah. yeah. He remembers, uh, I think, one, one story he told me was going out to the Chesapeake Bay out here in Maryland, and there was a place that said uh, the beach was for whites only. Mm. And, and he told me that story. He said, you know, just remember that because we must never let this kind of thing happen again, you know. It stays with the family, though, right? That kind of um, treatment and history. Yeah. Hmm. So, so I think that's, uh, you know, he always told me that um, you must always do better than others because, because you're, um, you're a minority, mm -hmm. right? You'll, you'll never be looked at as exactly as an equal, so you must always be better. You mm -hmm. must always work harder. You must always walk straighter. A number of things like that. You, mm -hmm. you know, never look, uh, never dress poorly because you're already being looked at as potentially a second-class citizen. So you must never fuel that, you know, that perception. And do you talk to your um, kids about that? Same I, way. I, I mean, I, I think I, I think it's just not so much from the perspective of oh, you know, you're. You're Asian, therefore you must. I think it's just from being a parent and saying <laughs> you need to do, you need to you need to dress nicely, you need to you know, walk straight, you need to do well in school. I mean, I think that's mm -hmm. just parent being a regular parent. Mm -hmm. um, but but you know they they've heard the stories. I mean, from my my parents, and of course they've they've read history, mm -hmm. so they know some of the you know things that went on. But but I think hearing it from their grandparents really makes it much more real than, than uh, uh, what they see in the textbook. Sure. They realize, oh, yeah, we have people here who actually went through this. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, it's like talking to the, the folks who had gone, 
gone through the civil rights mm-hmm. uh, movement at, at that time, you know, and, and realizing that, oh, we've got living witnesses of what it was like to have dogs set upon them, to mm-hmm. be, you know, face lynching and all these other things. Mm-hmm. Uh, we must never, I, I think the newer generation needs to actually hear from some of these folks from in the older generation to, to realize w- how much we have changed maybe how much we still need to go, but certainly how much we have changed. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, things have gotten, there have been some improvements. We, we, we could still improve more, for sure. sure. But one thing is that some immigrant families, and especially the um, second generation, third, uh, leave behind their immigration status and they... Um, yeah. um, and then some of them start to exclude more recent immis- immigrants, right? Mm-hmm. But you haven't. It sounds like you have a different view than them. Yeah, that, there's a lot of disturbing statistics about second, third, and, and succeeding generations of, of, of uh, that came from immigrant families. I, I think one of the disturbing ones I heard several years was, ago ago was that um, by the third generation. And I don't know which immigrant group they're looking at, if they were looking at specifics, but the, these researchers discovered that by the third generation, their academic achievement or their level of academic achievement had pretty much, uh, I'll have to say it this way, but had sort of dropped down to that of the local people, hmm. whereas the first generation or the second, even second generation, were much higher achievers academically. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, you know, it it was it certainly gave pause to me, and it made me think. Well, gosh, I've I really got to make sure my kids yeah. don't. Uh, you know that they they still maintain this sense of um, valuing education, right? Valuing hard work and things like that. And so, so we have. I mean, we've uh, you know our kids from the earliest age we we emphasized uh, reading. I mean, they would we'd say, okay, this summer. 100 books, start chalking them, reading them, chalking them down. Uh, from, from the time my, my kids were three or four years old, they were folding their own laundry. They were putting away the dishes. You know, uh, my, my son was mowing the lawn back when the handle of the lawnmower was right at about the top of his head. <laughs> and, we, and we were noticing that, you know, none of the other kids in the neighborhood were doing these kinds of things. Uh, and they kind of noticed it too. But we said, you know what, when you... When you grow up old, when you are older, you're going to value how much you know about doing these kinds of things that a lot of these kids are just like, I, I've never done this before. How do we do laundry? I don't know. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. you're going to value the, the skills you've learned just because we've challenged you to, to do these things, even from an early age. Yep. So I, I don't know. It's <laughs> my attempt at hopefully turning out good people, good uh, offspring, and and I don't know. Hopefully, they'll carry that on to their kids. But I don't know. Statistics seem you'll to have to live with them. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, the whole valuing education thing was uh, in your family, your parents too, because uh, your they were here. They had a child, you, who you described at the meeting as a bright, handsome child, who was destined for great things. <laughs> And uh, your dad was honorably discharged from the army, didn't want to go into the restaurant business with his parents, and went to college. Yep. 
and studied, wanted to study engineering. Right. Yeah, a lot of the, it's interesting because when I meet all of his, his generation of uh, Chinese immigrants, whether they're friends or relatives, I mean, a lot of them went into engineering. Hmm. Um, and I, you know, when I asked him about it, he said, well, mostly based on math. Math is pretty universal. Uh, it, we're not going to go into areas where there's a lot of uh, language involved in English language, right? Because we're not that good at that, you know? And in some sense, that kind of lent lend itself to the stereotype that, you know, all these Asian people, are, they're going to go into the, the science or technical fields because of the math, you know, and so they must be good at math. Well, they actually went into math, into these fields because math was manageable and the language was a lot harder to deal with. But it's only now in, in my generation of the younger ones that I start to see uh, a lot of Asian writers and journalists and movie makers, you know, people who are comfortable using the language because they're the second or third generation. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, I've got a cousin who's a, a New York Times uh, uh, reporter, mm -hmm. uh, Edward Wong, Edward Wong, not, not Edwin Wong, but Edward Wong, who uh, uh, has you know written often in the in the New York Times, and uh, I'm very proud that he's a journalist. You know right. that to me that's a that's a great step forward because we don't all have to be engineers <laughs> <No>. <laughs> or scientists even. Right. Um, but yeah, my father. I, I remember a, a number a number of years ago when I was small, when I was younger, and I I went up to the attic and I was just fishing through stuff in the attic, and I found his old textbooks. So I started looking through them, and I was just startled at how, you know, he had he, the the margins of the of the textbook were just filled with little scrawlings of like you know this this English word gets translated into this Chinese characters. He's like translating key words throughout the book, you know, and, and the, the pages were just filled, the margins of the pages were just filled with these little translations as he's trying to decipher some of this technical language. And I, I was just struck at, wow, you know, if you took me and plopped me into another country with a foreign language and said, okay, you're now going through college in this other language, I mean, I would, I'm not sure I could do it, you right. know? And so I was just so amazed that he had wrestled through that whole thing. And as I mentioned in the talk that during his first year, he was put on academic probation because he uh, was having so much difficulty um, with the, mostly with the language, right? The math stuff was probably much easier, but the language was a challenge, um, despite having spent several years in the Army. But, you know, now we're talking about writing stuff, right? We're talking about, about reports, and we're talking about essays and things that are even challenging for my... Sure. American-born students here. Mm -hmm. So, um, and that's, I think, where the, the story, you know, takes that turn where he had told me that there were a couple of professors who took the time to help him um, work through some of these challenges, to help him surmount these challenges, and that that had made the difference, you know, in, in his college career. And that, you know, gave him the, the, the I think, the confidence to, to push ahead and to, to uh, learn how to do better. It, it's probably not much different than some of our freshmen today where we're still trying, you know, they're trying to figure out, how do I do college, right? Um, for him, it was, it was a language situation. For some of our students today, it could be any number of other 
skills or, or abilities or, or topics. But um, at some point, hopefully someone helps them or they're able to find the strategies necessary to succeed. And for my father, certainly having a couple of faculty who cared enough to invest a little bit more time in him and to give him the, the, the tools he needed to, uh, to succeed made, made a great difference. Mm -hmm. And so by the end of the, his, his four years, he, he graduated uh, on the dean's list, which you know, to me that story from you know, academic probation to dean's list, that's like, wow, that's, I can only hope that I can get you know, my students to go like in, in that type of way to yes. end up that type of way. Mm -hmm. And he had a successful engineering career. Right. He went on to uh, work as a civilian engineer for the United States Navy, uh, the Naval Surface Weapons Center, and developed all sorts of defense systems for Navy ships to especially defend against those, uh, those smart missiles that were other, other countries, enemy countries were de developing against our, our Navy ships. And so he has a bunch of patents and a bunch of commendations for developing these ship defense systems. Mm. And yeah, spent all of his adult life working for them and retired with, uh, you know, uh, commendations from the commanders and various uh, supervisors that he had. It must be interesting for him to look back in your mom too, to uh, think about the all the challenges they had early on and then um, succeed here and raise a family and mm -hmm. have children and grandchildren and create their whole new life. Yeah. I mean, they went through some of the biggest turmoil this world has ever seen mm -hmm. in the Second World War and the, um, you know, the, the onset of, of communism across, uh, across much of the world in this country and, I mean, their country and um, all these new technological advances and things like that. And, and, and here they're raising kids that are, I, I consider us successful. I, I think their children turned out well, although my, when my mother heard that I was getting my, uh, my doctorate, she asked me when I was going to start working in the hospital, and I had to explain that I'm not that kind of doctor. <laughs> I'm the other kind of doctor. Um, so she was, was that uh, disappointing to her? I, uh, you know, for, for Asian parents, I think, at least traditional Asian parents, I, you, you're a doctor. <laughs> Lawyers came a little later, but it was more like, you're a doctor. You know, that was kind of a big, big deal. Uh, despite the fact that when I think back, I don't think any of my relatives... None of their kids ever became doctors. So uh, I think the fact that I got a Ph.D., which I think I'm actually the, the only one within our, within my parents' uh, siblings and uh, first cousins and all that who actually has a Ph.D. Mm -hmm. so, so they can brag about you. They can brag about me a little. I hope they brag about me. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to just quote from the talk that you gave uh, at the end of your talk, you said, as we start a new school, a new year of school, I am again challenged, not only with what my syllabus will look like or how many points I'm assigning for quizzes, but with the kind of impact I will make in the lives of my students. Will I be a hinge point in the trajectory of their lives, swinging them towards the positive rather than the negative? It, so it's clear that the uh, experiences your parents had uh, had an effect on you too. The two professors that helped mm -hmm. your father, the, all the uh, work your parents did to succeed, that you carry that with you still. 
Yeah, and, and of course, I've, I've had my own uh, exposure to good teaching, to, to good professors and teachers who have given me a, a hunger for learning. Um, I've also experienced poor teaching, hmm. you know, people that just discouraged me and, and made me wonder, why is this person up there mm -hmm. <laughs> trying to, why is this person up there trying to teach this class when I don't see any, uh, any real attempts at helping students to learn? Mm -hmm. I mean, so, you know, I've, I've, I've been there at the other end as a student, and, and I think the, certainly the ones who, who have had the, uh, who have invested their, um, their skills and their, and their, their, uh, desires and their hunger and their excitement about certain topic into their students. I mean, they're my, they're my models, you know, for, for how I would like to be. Mm -hmm. Um, but it is a challenge for me. I mean, I, every semester I, I teach the large introductory courses, right? So I get, like right now I have about a hundred students in my, uh, freshman general biology course that's a huge number of students to deal with i try to learn their names as fast as i can so i, I snapshot pictures of every one of them so mm. i can hang them on in my on my office wall every semester um i try to greet them in the hallway i try to find out little things about them you know what what are things you want me to know about you uh it, it's it is a challenge though i mean it's just simply the numbers alone are a challenge sure. and, and um and one of the things I'm I'm becoming more conscious of is that students have a life outside of school. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times we as teachers, we often, you know, focus in on, okay, here are the things I demand from you in school. Because, and, and you've got to do all these things. And we sort of ignore the fact that, you know, they have other demands. Some, many of them are, uh, have families that some of them, they, they support their families with, with part-time jobs or full-time jobs. Some of them have children. Uh, some of them have s significant health problems. And I, over the years, I've become much more conscious of the fact that these are not just, you know, a body in my class, but that as sort of whole people, they have this, this whole range of other things I have to be concerned about as well. Like, okay, so they missed this assignment because they had to work, you know, can I cut them some slack on this? Can I maybe offer some way for them to uh, make this up a little in a way and offer something that uh, an alternative uh, activity? Mm -hmm. Because we're, unlike I think in the past where I think more students were, you're a sort of traditional student, I call them, you know, we come out of high school, you come right into college, you sort of your whole life is pretty much just going to school. I think we're seeing much, much more uh, uh, of a, another type of student where they're they really occupied like half of their time is spent working to support themselves through school. Especially at our school, I think where we have a lot of uh, working students. Mm -hmm. Right? We have a lot of students who are first generation college students, so they don't have parents who can say, "Yes, this is how you should navigate college." Right? I'm maybe the first person to help them try to navigate college, um, there's a lot of challenges facing them that uh, has really sensitized me to, to the, the plight that our students have, have to face. Um, 
And, and, that, and that, so that's part of the challenge, I, not just getting to know them, but also how do I help them deal with this whole new phase of their life with its accompanying pitfalls and you know hurdles and everything else that they have to deal with and overcome. And with those introductory classes, you are one of the first teachers. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> They're coming in scared and unknown, yeah. not knowing what to do. Yeah, so a few years ago, we a, a bunch of us in the biology department decided we would develop a college, essentially a college survival course. And it actually tied right into this uh, emphasis that we have here at West, kind of do, doing these first-year experience courses for the freshmen. Um, we, you know, instead of integrating these little things throughout a, a regular content course, we decided to develop a standalone course that is just devoted at helping uh, freshman students figure out how to do college. Right? So everyone, everyone in the department is, is involved in it. We all take a different topic. We all sit down with the students. We all talk about, you know, here's how, here's how successful students do it. Um, and if you want to be a successful student, you know, you want to do these kinds of things. You want to adopt these types of habits. And we bring in upperclassmen, too, which are a great help because they're the ones who actually have made it that far. Mm -hmm. And now they can give some, share some of their wisdom to the, uh, to the underclassmen and say, yeah, you know, the way you're doing it, like you used to do in high school, that isn't going to fly here, right? You need to do this, 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 and this. You need to... Um, start adopting these particular habits, and then you'll get to, you know, you'll get the junior year, you'll get the senior year, you'll get to graduate, right? So, and I, for the, the freshmen, it is very eye-opening. I mean, I, mm. a lot of them tell me that uh, they really did not know that this is how you're supposed to do college. I mean, they've kind of heard it, or vaguely heard it, maybe, or maybe not heard it at all, but now they're, you know, especially hearing it from the upperclassmen, because, you know, teachers, we can tell them all we want, but right. they're not going to pay attention to us. But for their peers do make a bigger impact on them. And so the upperclassmen, uh, we, we count them as a very valuable resource in helping us to uh, reach these freshmen. That is valuable. I never had any of that. No, I didn't either. Yeah. You know, I, I often tell my students the story that uh, I came from a, one of the best high schools in Maryland, was an A student. Of course, <laughs> and and went, went went off to college, and my first semester I was pulling C's, and I was wondering what the heck is going on, and I didn't realize that um, college is very different than high school. In high school, everything's regimented, right? You got period one, period two, so on and so forth. Your your teacher is on top of you all the time, and you know you always get breaks. Oh, so I missed the quiz. Oh, okay, we'll give you we'll give you a makeup quiz, and, and then I hit college, and all of a sudden. Uh, we had, I had these huge blocks of empty time, you know, take a class, go to a lecture, then I got three hours and I go to the next lecture. And I thought that those blocks were free time. I thought they were like, I thought, my gosh, this is wonderful. I love college. I got so much freedom. I didn't realize that that block of time that was not in class was time that I was supposed to spend working on school stuff, right? I'm supposed to be working on, on studying, reviewing my notes, looking ahead, reading ahead, start working on projects, et cetera, et cetera. And it took me really a whole year before I figured out that the way that this, that this is not working for me. And so I was, yeah, I was quite a disgrace to my parents that first year in college. 
they're probably they're probably ready to just disown me. But um, <laughs> it make you start washing dishes. <laughs> exactly, right? it's time to go work in Grandpa's restaurant. <laughs> um, and I one of the things that helped me was, again was to talk to some of the upperclassmen in my department, and that's where it you know connects to what we're doing today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they said, well, yeah, if you want to, you know. You want to get this junior, your senior year. Here's what you got to do: do this, do this, do this. And I thought, oh, you know what? I'm not doing those things. Maybe that's why I'm getting C's and you know an occasional D on some of these exams. I'm mm. like, so that um, that changed things. So again, that kind of redirected, you know, swung the pendulum of my my college career in, the, in another direction, a better direction, and I was able to become a much more successful student as a result of that. But uh, it, so. And from experience, I know what a difficult learning curve it is mm-hmm. and how, what a, a tr- huge transformation in your mindset as you enter college. It's not, it's not 13th grade. That's right. why I often tell my students, it's not 13th grade. So you have a pretty wide range of teaching duties, though, because you have the incoming students, and you also do involve students in your research mm-hmm. that uh, is, I guess, centered on Candlewood Lake right now and... Yeah. Uh, what we lay people call blue-green algae, right? Yeah, yeah. I've been. I, one of the cool things about coming here to Westcon is uh, this uh, this school and and uh, especially our biology department has been partnering for a long time with folks who are very uh, concerned about the the regional n- environment, uh, and especially since we have Candlewood Lake, which is the biggest lake here in Connecticut right at our doorstep. That's an obvious place that uh, would be a, a focus for a biology department. And so, so we've, we've had a lot of uh, you know, faculty and, and student-assisted research that's associated with that, and along with the Houstonic River, which is also right next door. Um, and, and so we, various types of issues like uh, the zebra mussel infestation, which has taken over Houstonic River, Mm-hmm. And zebra mussels are an invasive, you know, uh, uh, shellfish that has devastated much of the Great Lakes and some of the uh, the rivers of the, of the western United States um, by their proliferation. And they, they just clog up uh, uh, water intake pipes. They clog up dams. They they lay waste to um, beaches because you can't walk across sharp zebra mussel shells and things like that. And now they're, they've invaded the Houstonic River over the last what, a, almost a decade right now, mm. uh, which has caused huge problems in, in that area. And now they're threatening Candlewood Lake because if they get, ever get into Candlewood Lake, you know, one of our best recreational resources could be kind of devastated mm-hmm. by, that, by those things. So um, I was, was invited early on to, you know, see if I'd be interested in doing something with Candlewood Lake and being a DNA scientist and being someone who's also played a lot, uh, used a lot of the DNA uh, technologies like DNA fingerprinting and DNA sequencing to study other things, I thought, well, it would be cool to, for us to use DNA to track these zebra mussels and see if we can find their DNA signature and use that essentially as an, uh, not only as an early warning device, but also monitor how, you know, how fast they're spreading, where are they coming from, et cetera. And so a number of years ago, I, I started doing that um, in cooperation with the Candlewood Lake Authority and some of our my other um, colleagues in the department, uh, and then of course more recently with the 
um, development of more of these blue-green algae blooms, properly called cyanobacteria, of course, because they are bacteria, not, mm -hmm. not algae, not plant algae like most uh, people think they are. Uh, this is another avenue that my lab has started to investigate because we look at... Uh, the, the, so the issue with the cyanobacteria or the blue-green algae is that um, when they proliferate and they cause an exploded number or cause a bloom, as we call it, they produce uh, various types of compounds that are toxic to humans and animals. And these are toxins that can destroy your liver. They can they destroy your brain. Some of them are skin, you know, skin irritants. That's like the least, you know, mm -hmm. concern. Uh, and so, so these have, they actually have caused human deaths and animal deaths in other parts of the country across the years. So now that we're seeing more of these things appearing here in, in our area, right? We're we're, people are greatly concerned about that. And so I've again started to, uh, approach it in a molecular fashion, two ways. One is I, I, I investigate the cyanobacteria that are in our waterways to see if they possess the genes, the genetic capability of producing these toxins. Also, I've started to test for the toxins themselves so I can actually measure the concentration of these toxic compounds. And we've been doing this for, now for three three summers. We've been doing it uh, uh, as a service to our our uh, the lake towns, and also the ones, uh, some of the beaches along the Housatonic River and what's called Lake Zor, which is a, uh, a, a an impound and a dam that's on the Housatonic River. And and uh, um, it's been really uh, important for them because uh, if when the toxin levels get up to a certain point, by federal law they have to, and by state law, they have to shut down the beaches because the the toxins are, are too dangerous for recreational users. Mm -hmm. And we actually have had, of these three years, which include this past summer, um, the last two, this year and the previous year, we've had uh, a number of these uh, situations where the toxin levels did go way over the federal limit mm -hmm. and uh, the towns had to shut down the beaches. Uh, just to let you know how serious it got, um, let's see, last week which was our last testing period, uh, Lake Zor had, some of the beaches on Lake Zor had toxin levels that were 50 times mm -hmm. over the federal limit for beach closure. Um, so it's, you know, if your dog ran into the water and then splashed around and came out and licked its fur, it would probably get, depending on the size of the dog and body weight, et cetera, exposure, it could get either very, very sick or, or potentially die. Mm -hmm. And one of the results that you're testing, though, is that uh, in previous years, people would see the blue-green algae bloom or the cyanobacteria yeah. bloom and run screaming out of the water, whereas they don't always need to because uh, every bloom does not right. possess uh, the produce the to toxins. Right. Right. And I think that's the yeah that's a key thing. That's why we we look at the genes as well as test the water for the toxins because we've discovered that some populations have the genes. But whatever environmental trigger is, in, is necessary for the genes to turn on just isn't present. So they may, you may have the genetic capability of making toxins, but you just don't have the on switch to turn on those toxins. Uh, whereas, you know, other times you could be at a, there could be a lower concentration of, like I remember, uh, let's see, we looked at 
just as give an example, the, uh, the last week we were, I was out at Kettletown State Park. I didn't really see any obvious blooms on the water, you know, it, but there was definitely, you know, the, the water was murky, mm -hmm. but not significantly so. Um, and yet when we tested the water, I mean, the, the levels were, you know, pretty close to the federal limit. So, so you could have a lower concentration of cells, but if they're all turned on, if their genes are turned on for making toxin, then you, you're pumping out toxin. Mm -hmm. Whereas you could have a, a nice healthy bloom, but as long as whatever environmental trigger, whatever, whether it's temperature or nutrients or some other chemical in the water is not present, then they're not making the toxin. They're kind of messy to swim through. You still don't want to go swimming through like a pea soup stuff probably. Right. But, but you um, won't die. Yeah, but you won't die, right? So. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And at the moment, there's no zebra mussels in uh, Candlewood Lake, We right? have not detected zebra mussels yet. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're always but looking. I know, yeah. And you've had a couple of scares, not yeah. scares, but uh, suspicious. Yeah. Uh, um, Anyway, otherwise they wouldn't. You wouldn't know, right? Because you examine the uh, microscopic, um, right? The little uh, larvae, larval right, forms right. of them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I haven't picked up any DNA um, signature for them in the, in Candlewood Lake yet. And of course, Houstonic River is just there's, they're all over the place. Right. It seems like, but mm. yeah. So the fear is, of course, that they will, since water from Houstonic River is used to refresh Candlewood Lake. You know, some we someday some it's going to be just the right time where we pump up water and they happen to suck up a bunch of these right. larvae and they get into Candlewood and then yeah, people often ask me, well, so can we can we kill the zebra mussels? Can we kill the cyanobacteria? So my simple answer is uh, yes. You'd have to bomb the whole lake. I mean, not physically with a bomb, but with a chemical bomb, mm -hmm. you basically have to poison everything to kill just these guys. Mm -hmm. And so you'll make it uninhabitable for pretty much everything. Um, and then you'd have to restock everything. Like, okay, so we kill off all the bass and the game fish in, in Canada. We'll have to restock those. Plus we'll have to keep people out of the water until all the poisons have dissipated uh, or broken down. Um, for a, a fast-moving body of water like the Houstonic River, Pretty impractical, right? Because it's always washing out the the chemicals. I mean, right. a, a le ponds are they often use poisons for p small ponds and small, uh, very small lakes mm -hmm. um, because they're contained, and you can literally poison everything in there and then then restock it with other things. But um, for very large lakes like Candlewood, I can't even imagine doing it for Candlewood uh, for no. the whole lake, yeah. and of course for the river, that's not really practical either. Right. You get a big rainstorm and, and yeah, everything's flushed out. Exactly. Right. So, so prevention is really the the, the watchword here. And I think that keeping the zebra mussels out of Candlewood is important. Boaters are one of the major mm -hmm. vectors for these these zebra mussels because mm -hmm. these zebra mussels will stick to boats on another lake. The boaters will bring their boat over to Candlewood without cleaning the boat. And they'll simply deposit the mm -hmm. zebra mussels in the lake. Uh, Blue-green algae uh, or cyanobacteria—they're ubiquitous throughout the the environment. I mean, they're in soil, they're in water, they're a natural inhabitant. So the prevention step there is don't feed them, mm. because if we continue to give them nutrients, and also if the temperature of this planet continues to warm up, because heat is is really they it favors 
cyanobacterial blooms because they love to grow in heat. Mm -hmm. Who doesn't? Um, they love nutrients. And unfortunately, nutrients, from our perspective, comes from uh, fertilizers, so agricultural fertilizers. Lawn fertilizers are a big one. Mm -hmm. um, sewage from you know, overflowing uh, septic systems, et cetera, they flow down into the, these, our bodies of uh, water. That's food, mm -hmm. right? That, and during the summer, we get all this stuff rinsing off your lawn, and they're just, the cyanobacteria just chowing down on that stuff. And so, so when people ask me, how do we deal with these things, I often say, well, you know, we, we could destroy everything. We could nuke everything. Or you can just not give them a foothold in the first place. Mm -hmm. But that requires us to think about certain things that we, you know, do we want a perfectly green lawn? So I've got to fertilize it more than it needs, you know. Mm -hmm. um, am I taking care of my septic system? Or am I just ignoring it and saying, well, good luck where that stuff flows? Uh, because those are, that's what's impacting our waterways. So we can't complain and say, well, why is this here? Well, it's because... Right. Things that we're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I understand wanting a nice lawn. I don't have a nice lawn, but <laughs> I understand why, you know, they look beautiful. Yeah. But if you're in that environment right on the lake, right? it seems, I know more and more people are getting it and changing their way they landscape. But yeah, uh, yeah. I'm sure they're paying more attention to their septic systems too. Yeah, that, that's, and that's a big thing around the lake communities. They're really trying to get this point uh, home to, to the folks who live around the lake that have, if they want to preserve the value of their property on the lake and the, the health of the lake is what, you know, matters there, then they need to do some things uh, with their lifestyle that protects the lake as opposed to, you know, l leading to its destruction. Right. Thinking long term. Yeah. Yeah. It's very good. So we've uh, covered a lot and learned why you were chosen as the teacher of the year here, I think, today. Ed. Thank you. Thanks for being here with us and talking about uh, your family, your own background, and your approach to teaching here at Westcon. Thanks, Paul. Appreciate it. Before Barbara Viegas joins us, I want to remind our listeners that this podcast comes to you from Western Connecticut State University, offering a high-quality, affordable education. If you have questions about enrolling at WestCon, send an email to admissions at wcsu.edu, or you can contact us through this podcast and ask for Barbara. She will tell you everything you want to hear. Uh, along those lines, and following last week's podcast, I also want to say that the views expressed by Barbara do not necessarily reflect those of Western Connecticut State University, its administration, faculty, students, or staff. You need a disclaimer? Yeah, it's just for you. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> okay. Do you have any events today or just me? Just you. All right. Are we ready? Mm-hmm. Are we what? Ready? Yeah. Okay. We've been ready. He's uh, tapping. You usually talk first. I did my intro already. So you mean I should say, hey, Barbara, how's it going today? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Hey, Pete. <laughs> Paul. <laughs> oh, my God, Pete. <laughs> oh, boy. Hey, Pete, Paul, Paul, Pete. <laughs> hey, the both of you. <laughs> Peter, Paul, and Barbara. Oh. Peel.
Peter Piper pulp. <laughs> Off to a great start here, guys. <laughs> All righty then. That's why people listen in. They don't really care about the events. They just want to hear our banter. Yeah, mm -hmm. witty banter. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, so we have really cool events this week. Um, particularly, maybe it'd be a little biased, but um, Westcom Without Borders is having... Um, so it's not our event. It's uh, an event that we are also participating in, um, but it's put on by the Undocu Ally Task Force. It's uh, the Salvadorian migrant families uh, torn at home, torn at the border. It's mm. basically a story. There's going to be, like, speakers. Um, it's a tour from El Salvador. Speakers from Bernardo Beloso and Zulma Tobar. Um, those are their names, not where they're from. Mm -hmm. Will share their work and life experiences in migrant-sending communities in El Salvador. They will also discuss challenges faced by Salvadorian families under the U.S. zero-tolerance policy on migrants at the border. Uh, so it's free and open to the public. Uh, West Western Without Borders or West Con Without Borders um, is going to be bringing some like um, cultural foods and everything. Um, it's next Wednesday, October tenth, uh, eleven a.m. to twelve thirty p.m. The food will be there at eleven a.m. So all throughout, and it's going to be by donation. Like you don't like you know you can come and get like free food if you if you want, but like if you want to donate, then you can too. And all of those proceeds will go, will go to West Con Without Borders. Um, which is our student club here on campus. Aren't you the president of that? Yes. Yes. And um, where is it going to be? Or Yeah, where is it going to be? It's uh, Whitehall 127 on Great. the Midtown campus. Um, and West Con Without Borders just met on Monday the 1st, and we meet every two weeks, Mondays at 4.30 in the Student Center 209. So our next meeting is, Mon is October 15th, Monday at 4.30. So in come Student Center 209. Yes. Good. Honestly, we're... We, like, you know, started the semester off, and we have, like, a lot of ideas. So we're doing things like an inter... Like, this is what's, like, we're thinking of doing so mm -hmm. far. We're doing, like, an intercultural dinner. Um, I want to do a town hall with the SGA. Uh, we're also thinking of doing a Connecticut Students for a Dream training for uh, student leaders, uh, as well as this event. And then we're also going to attempt to be trying to sponsor um, a speaker that the Office of Intercultural Affairs is attempting to get on campus. Nothing's official yet because, um, you know, nothing has been, like, signed or anything. But the plan is right now to get um, a speaker called uh, Benjamin Teixeira Jaguiar. He's from Brazil. And he uh, – so basically for the week uh, – the weekend of campus ministries in November, uh, November 30th and the th – 30th and the 1st, uh, I think it's 29, 30, thir and the first. The first might be like a fashion show or something. But on the 30th, basically, uh, we're trying to uh, sponsor with the uh, Office of Intercultural Affairs a speaker to come. Because uh, the whole day is basically about campus ministries, and our club is about inclusion um, and, you know, the getting rid of, like, borders that can find people. And basically the speaker um, is spirituality with or without religion. So he's about, mm -hmm. like, inclusion um, and, you know, just the not being not having like prejudice and like noticing your own prejudice within yourself um kind of like the thing that i learned about um you know what i said last week about how like the first thought second thought thing like mm -hmm. i heard from him um so basically that's what we're trying to do and he does speak portuguese but uh we're getting uh he also speaks at the united nations hmm. um every year uh, for the past five years and he and the quantum leap institute which he speaks he's like the leader of it or whatever the president i guess you could say um, is part of, it's an ECOSOC. Uh, I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. I know in, in Portuguese it's 
ECOSOC or whatever, mm. ECOSOCI. <laughs> um, but it's basically the same as UNICEF. Like, they have 10 mm. voting seats on the United Nations. So oh, he's, like, a huge guy. Mm. Um, and he's, you know, might be coming to Western, so. That'd be cool. Yeah. And just trying to, like, early promote, even though it's not completely set in stone. Mm-hmm. It's probably going to be on the Westside campus around 6 o'clock. But and you need to get uh, the honors program behind it too, right? Yeah. So basically, like, we're going to try to get – it's tough because it is uh, kind of related to faith. Like, it is, like, uh, right, right. spirituality with or without religion. It's just about inclusivity. Mm-hmm. But I think that um, clubs like ours, like, like diverse, like, in- intercultural kind of things, uh, clubs and everything will be kind of willing to back, you know, someone that's, um, like anti prejudice, anti like right. ex- like exclusion of like people or like discrimination, racism, all of this thing, all of these things he talks about, um, and how to better yourself and with it with like recognizing these things that you might have inside you and not even notice. Right. Um, so honestly, it's really cool. Um, it's still in the works. You know, mm-hmm. I'll have more information. You know, later by the end of the week, um, I'm gonna get like the quotes and everything from. His people, mm-hmm. uh, and yeah, so excellent. I've actually followed him for, I think, three years now, hmm. almost four. So, so you knew about him already? Yeah, I, I'm the one that like brought in the idea because like when I started working at the Office of Intercultural Affairs, I heard you know they wanted to do campus ministries and like a day of it celebrating like for that day it'll be like celebrating Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, like all hmm. of those things, and kind of like as a, like a final like resolution to the day of like. All of these religions and all of these cult, whatever, um, are like options. You also have the option of if you don't like, you know, structured faith or like, whatever the word is, like structured religion mm-hmm. or relig- like, you know, like people that don't like that kind of thing. You can also have your own faith or your own spirituality with or without religion. Mm-hmm. So his whole thing is like you can come to his lectures and stuff, or like because you can't unless you go to Brazil, you can't really come. But um, you can watch them online. They're live every Sunday. Um, but anyway, like you can watch, um, and be like Catholic, you can watch and be Muslim or Jewish or like anything or atheist. You can watch and be atheist, even if you don't believe in like what he's saying, like it's, it's universal. Like Mm -hmm. his message is pretty universal. So those are like the things that are coming up with West Con Without Borders. I know it's kind of biased because I'm totally the president. So like, but we're, we're working really hard this semester, um, which I'm really happy about and excited about because, you know, I leave in December. So I'm really Mm -hmm. hoping to get at least you know, the majority of these events accomplished. Before it all collapses. No, (laughs) it won't collapse. (laughs) But at least, like, you know, we'll have, like, people will recognize our club, you know? Mm -hmm. The more events that I can get out this semester as, like, my last stand kind of thing, like, the people will recognize our club and see it as, like, a valid thing, you know, want to join it. Um, It's already grown. Like, it's pretty cool. A lot of social work students are part of our club, Hmm. which is, like, shout-out to social work. Like, they're really awesome Mm -hmm. and so we started this year with like five people i mean we're still like still not like completely you know huge but i think we have like 15 or something which is not bad like it's not bad and to think like you know we just started last semester Mm -hmm. like it's a new thing and um and yeah we're part of the undocumented task force too so it's a good, like, sidetrack. We were focused a lot of undocumented students kind of thing, mm-hmm. undocumented peoples, and now we're kind of broadening our horizons because that's what our club is about. It's not just about undocumented students. It's about, you know, inclusion and right. all that. Breaking down all borders. Literally, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, so other events. <laughs> um, 
there is the so GSA Gender and Sexuality Alliance is having National Coming Out Day. Uh, you can sign a banner with encouraging messages and advice for LGBTQ and individuals coming out. It's uh, Thursday, October 11th at 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. in the camp in the campus and student center lobbies. So the, on both campuses. Yes. So the LGBTQ pins will be sold at the tables as well. You can come for more club information. So is that a national day? I believe so. Hmm. I hadn't I heard of it national. before. Well, yeah, a national coming out day. Oh. So, <laughs> yes. So is uh, <laughs> unless they're had you false heard of it before? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think I, I think like a friend might have mentioned it once, mm. but like nothing. I hadn't like. Actually, yes, because you know Snapchat does like a bunch of filters on it. So yes, mm. I actually have heard of it, mm. but not like, yeah. So is it? Uh, the day that it would be good to come out to your family or friends and or friends or... I think it's just a celebration of people that oh, had the courage to come out. Mm -hmm. Not that you have to come out on that day. Mm -hmm. But yeah. again, all of the support, the community support of that day makes it easier for a lot of people to come out. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know, maybe there, there probably is like a higher, you know, surplus of people that come out on that day. Mm -hmm. You know, I came out on National Coming Out Day. That's pretty cool to say, you know. <laughs> It's like getting married on Valentine's Day. Ugh, that's... There's a lot more of... I don't of, like that uh... either. <laughs> I don't like that. I do like people coming out. Like yeah. being themselves, that's positive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like... And there's a lot more of that on campus now over the yeah. last few years, too. It's been more um, open and welcoming, I think, to LGBTQ students. I know that there's been a lot of, like, negativity politically and, like, all of these things. But, like, I think that our, you know, society in general is just moving in a positive direction. Mm -hmm. Like with the whole concept of inclusion and, you know, So you can be who you are and without acceptance. hiding it. Yeah, and it being accepted, right, yeah. for who you are. Which is just a positive thing in general, so mm -hmm. hopefully it continues, you know. Not everyone, but I'd like to thank the majority. Um, okay, so PAC is also hosting a double feature movie night. Wow. Uh, so you can come and watch Monsters, Inc. and Monsters, Inc. University. Those so, are old, too. Those are just the best movies. Like, I mean, I kind of get it. Like, they're totally, like, hitting the, na like, the nail on... What is it? The nail on the coffin? Nail no. on the head. No. Nail on the head. Nail on the coffin is a bad thing, right? Yeah, putting the final nail in the coffin. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Never mind. <laughs> hitting the nail on the head. That's what it is. Because, um, like, I feel like at least, like, my generation that's, like, in college right now, like... We, like, grew up watching these movies, and they were mm -hmm. so funny. They were funny. So it was just, like, nice to, um, I don't know, get a little taste Nostalgia. of... Nostalgia. Exactly. Uh, so Midtown Student Center Theater, starting at 4 p.m., Monsters, Inc. and Monsters University. <laughs> so get ready to see Boo. <laughs> <laughs> makes sense, too. It's it's Halloween, you know. Oh, uh, that's right. The month I of October. Mm -hmm. uh, so Halloween... The pack haunted graveyard to Lake Compounds trip is sold out. Oh, already sold out. You haven't even announced it yet. Oh, I'm so upset. <laughs> I really wanted to go, but the good news is they have a wait list. So if you want to be on the wait list, just email walldrop003. And this is a trip to where? Lake Compounds. Oh. And have you been on this before? Yes. Hmm. And it was fun? Yes. <laughs> it's really fun. And it's cheap. How much is it? $10 for students. Wow. Everything mm -hmm. is cheap here. <laughs> like, 
except for food. <laughs> Side note. <laughs> I didn't think the food was that bad either. I mean, it's uh, <laughs> depends, you know, like on the Midtown, um, you know, cafeteria now, if you want a salad, you have to pay $10 for the buffet, regardless mm. of what you get. So mm. when I want a salad, I have to get pay $10. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah. So it sucks. So you file in a bunch of stuff you don't want to? Yep, or what? and then you just get fatter and fatter. <laughs> Can't you just I take came... off the stuff you don't want and hand it to somebody else? Well, I, I went in for a salad. I left with a salad and a chicken burger and a little small thing of chili. <laughs> and you ate all that? And cookies. <laughs> oh, well, that, that's what you should and for 10 And chocolate bucks. milk. Mm. Probably other things as well. Mm-hmm. Did you eat it all yourself then? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is. Uh, you're right. Yeah, so I went in for a salad and I left fat. Like, <laughs> this is what happens. Not that there's anything wrong with being fat either. And there's nothing wrong with being fat, but I don't, like, necessarily. I want to keep my figure. There's nothing wrong with wanting to keep your figure. And mm-hmm. it's kind of impossible <laughs> when yeah, you yeah. have to get a buffet every day. Couldn't you just take the salad? <laughs> Yes, but I have no self-control, okay? <laughs> if I'm paying $10, there, I'm getting $10. Getting that's the key there. Yeah, but also they have a freaking ice cream machine. Mm. Like there's no way for me not to get ice cream after. And like, that's included in the 10 bucks. Yes. Oh, my God. That's a great deal. It's a great deal, but I'm getting fatter. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, I just can't eat there anymore. I just have to bring my own salad mm-hmm. and just cry in my office. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You get more work done, too. Yeah. It's like a, a love-hate relationship. But I know that, you know, if they had taken that out, they, it would just be – there's always complaints about everything, you mm-hmm. know? Some people are happy. They get access to a lot of food in one sitting. Others, like me, are just complaining about right. everything. You're often leading the charge about the complaints. Yes, because we have a right to free speech in this country. <laughs> Therefore, I will exercise it. There's a student reporter from the Echo, the student paper, coming to interview me tomorrow about Friday classes. Oh, God. Yeah. Friday classes suck. (laughs) I assume that's what his his take is on it. I mean, I can't work on Fridays anymore because of Friday classes. Because what classes are you taking on Friday? I have three classes on Fridays, Mm. two in the morning and one in the afternoon, Mm. meaning I can't work lunch or dinner. (laughs) The one in the afternoon is a... uh, what do they call those? Uh, not one you're required to take. It's a uh, well. It kind of is a requirement. It's a JLA elective requirement. Yeah. So I have to take one more J elective. JLA mm. elective. Also, you're going through in three and a half years, so that's kind of your fault. <laughs> hey, Paul. Oh. Yeah. When you were in college, did you have classes on Friday? Yes, I did. Oh, that's weird. I did too. <laughs> oh, that's huh. weird. That sucks for you. <laughs> <laughs> And when you were in high school, you had classes on Friday. Yeah, but, you know, we have not had class on Friday for a long time. Five years. And Five you know years. What? When you have a job, you're going to work on Friday, too. Okay, but you also have to pay for college while you're in college, at least for the majority of students here, yeah. which are unable to now because work on Fridays. They're unable so, to work on Fridays to pay for college. I know that I struggled a lot with it trying to figure out this semester. So now I have to work, like, a lot. Tuesday and Thursday. And during the week for university, which is what, that's a oh, substitution yeah, that's that right. I did. Hmm. I did, like, since I can't work a whole day there, I'm just going to work at the university that way. Because at the university, you can do, like, random hours, mm-hmm. you know? It's not, like, fixed, like, a whole dinner shift or something. So that's what I, that was my 
uh, substitution. And you like wor- working at the university in the Intercultural Affairs Office. Yeah. You almost said no. <laughs> no, no, yes, yes, I do. I'm just trying to, like, you're just trying to, never mind. <laughs> I think it's all a benefit. It is, yeah, everything's great. <laughs> everything's dandy. You're the example I'm going to use when I talk to the reporter. No, <laughs> <laughs> I am against this. <laughs> Oh, God. Okay. Uh, we also have run or die, uh, which is you can get fit or die trying. That's mm. their slogan. That's really funny. Uh, so you got to run, you know, real fast to not get died on or died. Splashed with dye, right? Well, it's kind of, it's like a powder. Mm. So I was trying to think of how to say that, but. Powdered dyed, with dye. Powdered with dye. Regardless, you're going to get powdered yeah. with dye because there's a dye person at every little station so <laughs> which is awesome i totally tried to get dyed the most i could la- mm-hmm. the last time i did it because i just think it's awesome i wanted like every color um yeah but then i forgot to bring change of clothes or a towel or something so right. i got in my black disgusting. car it's and a, it was great yeah did you get that all that color out before you sold it yes mm-hmm. it wasn't it's definitely not like permanent dye or anything yeah. like it came off really easy mm. But it was funny because, like, if I, like, shook my head with my hair, it would, like, make a puff of, like, green. <laughs> it was amazing. I like that. It's a three-mile run. It begins at noon, um, October 14th. Did you run the whole three miles? Yes, I did. Hmm. I think so. I mean, I made it to the end. <laughs> so. Well, walk or run? Oh, no, I did. I ran. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> uh, so you have to – pre-registration is recommended. You can download registration, the registration form at wcsu.edu slash recreation. And the event is free for all Western students. It's $15 pre-registered for general public or $20 on the day of the event. So students So everybody can get in. Yes. And it's really fun. Mm-hmm. Kids eight and under are free. Wow. And then you got to wash them when you go home. <laughs> Unf- <laughs> well, hopefully uh, you're washing them anyway. It's <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, a good point. But well, it says here that there's no free T-shirt or a dye packet for kids, though. Oh. I guess you have to pay for it. Or like, the, the parent has to, like, give in and, like, give it to their kid. <laughs> yeah, that's probably what happens. Yeah. Um, are you dying to run? <laughs> Come to the run and die. Uh, okay, and then we also have paintball. What day is today? Third. Okay. Uh, October 6th <laughs> by the Rec Council. It's a paintball battle, which I have never done. Mm. I don't know. What what day is the 6th? I think it's a Saturday, isn't it? Oh. Yeah. 12 p.m. to 4 p.m. Midtown mm-hmm. Science Lawn. Mm. That's interesting. Free for all Western students. This is amazing. You could do that, right? Yes. I believe I can. Mm-hmm. And how about, it doesn't say anything about guests. They can't come. I always have to wonder about guests because I always usually just go with my boyfriend, Nick. We mm-hmm. know his name now. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> so that sounds amazing. I've never done it, and it's expensive, isn't it? Paintball is expensive. Mm-hmm. Do you have to bring your own goggles? Oh, my God. I remember one time my family went, and I didn't go. <sighs> to this event? No. Uh, paintball. paintball. Uh, indoor thing. I don't know why I didn't go. I think I had like school or something. I've always been that person. Do you have to bring so your own paintball go. gun or what? I th- oh, I know what it is. Okay, our neighbor had paintball 
guns and paintballs and he like took everyone out and it's like a field and was like let's do it hmm. and like i guess i was working or something which oh excuse me yeah. which sucked haha <laughs> 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 ha. okay you have uh, to speak up when you swear i couldn't hear what you said <laughs> listen paul <laughs> um that's such a hard habit to like stop doing like or to quit i guess you could say Okay, 12.30, never mind. Um, 12.15. Sorry, I gotta, you know, we know. I have, like, a limit. <laughs> oh, yeah, you gotta get to class. Yeah, but I thought, I thought that I had to. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. I don't know why I had to leave at 12. I don't know. I thought I had to leave at 12 for a second. Mm. And I was like, no, Barbara. Anyway, cursing sucks. Like, it just sucks. But honestly, like, I, with all the attorneys that I've worked with, not worked with, but, like, interned with and, like, no, they always, like, they swear so much. Really? And I'm like, uh... I guess I can't, I don't have to stop. Like, <laughs> obviously they don't swear in court or anything or like right. with their clients, but, but in front of the interns they do. Yeah. I mean, we're just like, I feel like we're really passionate people, especially mm. cause the kind of law that I want to go into, you know, like immigration and criminal law. Mm -hmm. It's just like, you get kind of passionate about it. A lot of the professors are attorneys too that, and they curse all the time. In class? Yeah. It's great. Uh, that's good. Um, actually, uh, we had a student actually in my class now. Because I waited, like, so long to, to take criminal law um, because they was only offered at night, and I hate night classes because I have work, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, uh, but for some, for finally, like, my last semester, it was offered. Um, either way, I'd have to take it. So, But luckily, it was offered during the day. And so it's, like, a 200-level class. So it's pretty – it's not too hard. Mm -hmm. um, but there, I think she's a freshman or a sophomore, and it's, like – I think – I don't know if it was an elective that she did or she had, like, a – she was thinking of doing – criminal justice but it was so funny like looking at her face when the professor just started cursing and like just saying like all these things and it was just so funny i was like girl you don't even know <laughs> and he was saying like listen like i curse because these things are serious and like i'm like it's you need this kind of reaction from people and also because like the easiest way to get a student's attention when they're not paying attention is just like throw a curse in there and they're yeah, like what imagine. they mm -hmm. like lit their faceless is like oh what happened <laughs> So, yeah. So honestly, it was just funny. It happens all the time. I think it's I think it's good. But in my um, what class? Uh, it's called Human Rights, Him Liberty and Justice for All. Best. Okay, it's just such a good class. Um, shout out to Casey Jordan. Mm. She's awesome. Mm -hmm. um, she's one of our stars. Yeah, I mean, she's a tough cookie, but <laughs> she's really. I mean, just I had never taken a class with her. I did take, like, an internship kind of course, I guess, but it wasn't, like, a class. Mm -hmm. And I was always kind of afraid of her, you know, because, like, she's the, is, same, yeah. she's the same rep as um, Divya Sharma. Sharma is a tough, she's tough. She's what tough she grader. Teach? She teaches criminal justice, too. Hmm. She t teaches uh, research methodology. Hmm. And she had the same kind of rep, you know, of being really tough. Um, so I, you know, I, I tried... Divya Sharma, she's incredible. Hmm. It's always these professors that, like, people are, like, honestly, people are, they don't want to learn. Like, like they just don't want, they want to do, like, the minimum. Yep. And that's not what they want, you know? Those are the kind of uh, professors that, like, want more from you, and mm -hmm. they expect it. And that's the kind of classes that you take, and you learn more than you learned in any other class. Like, I learned so much in research methodology and, like, how to research things that I, like, every other paper that I've written since has been so easy because, like, I know how to do it. Mm -hmm. I know how to research these things. Mm -hmm. And the same thing with um, this human rights classes I'm taking right now with Casey Jordan. It's, like, she, her focus is, like, in, in 
making you understand like what's going on in the world. And like the first class that we we had, she, it's human rights. So she's like, what what is a human? Like what constitutes a human? And mm-hmm. we talked about like life at conception, life at birth, life at all that. Like you don't think of these things mm-hmm. until like you take these classes that like really like make you think. And it, it's just incredible. Like we're right now we're on genocide. You know, we're learning about you know genocide. Uh, we learned about like the genocide of Rwanda. Um, I, I just did my paper. It's actually due today. I just finished writing it earlier today. While you um, were working in uh, intercultural affairs office? No. Hmm. Earlier before oh, I started okay. work. But, you know, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I just finished it. And, you know, I read it over and everything. I have to, like, finish, like, citing and all that. Hmm. But it's on the Holocaust. And ugh, there's just... You think that you know about the Holocaust until mm. you actually research the Holocaust, and you're like, uh, "I didn't. What was taught? Nothing." And honestly, those classes make you feel like your education system failed you. <laughs> like I was like, I didn't like. There's no way. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. I just recommend. I mean, don't take research methodology if you don't have to, because like, it's tough. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's not like it's not like it's rewarding, but it's not like, you know, I don't know. <laughs> If and you're for JLA major, it's a 400 level class, like mm. for JLA. So if you're not JLA, don't take it. Like, right. there's no reason you're not going to enjoy it. Um, but if you are JLA, you have to take it, and it's not that bad. Take it with Sharma; she's amazing. A lot of people are going to like hate me because she's tough. Mm-hmm. So there are some students that like don't want tough; they just want easy, and they just rather like, you know, that's West Con students. I mean, students in general. There's mm. you can go to Yale and find students like that. Mm-hmm. Like, any, it's just a, you know, it's just about like realizing. You're here to learn, you know. Right. If you, if you're gonna take this on with you, like you, you should at least grasp some things. And mm-hmm. and I'm guilty too. Like I have a comm major, like a communications major, and I totally like just it's not the same, you know. Like I'm like that student the opposite way because I'm just like all right, like I just want to finish this. Because you really want to be a lawyer. Yeah, but you know, instead of a podcast. Uh... <laughs> Wait! Oh my God! No, this, no, this you is, put a lot of effort into this. I'm not saying that. It's no, just I'm that, saying uh, like I didn't realize. Like obviously, this is a form of communication. I didn't realize this is like. Yeah. yeah. You should get extra credit for it. I should. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no. What is that called when you get like? It's like a thing when like you do something with a professor, and then you get credit for it as a class. Extra credit. No. Independent study. Yes, or, there you go. independent study. I've done it for a year now. You have. So I should get six credits. Pete, <laughs> um, you have to be the teacher and grade. Not a teacher. Yeah. You're not a teacher either. You're an administrator. So. Yeah. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> Wasted time. <laughs> no, it's been fun. Yeah. Um, did you study communications in school? Journalism. Communication. Communications. <laughs> It's without the S. It's communication yeah. without the S. Yeah, I know. That's why I laughed at myself because yeah. I said communications. Yeah. <clears throat> the professors don't like that. But journalism. I studied journalism. That's pretty cool. I could see you doing that. Yeah, since I became a journalist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was good. I meant like I can see you like in school like studying journalism and all that. Like <laughs> you're just that guy. Like, you have the face too. Journalist. Paul Steinman. You have a face for newspapers, Paul. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's why you're on them. <laughs> the saying is, oh, that guy's got a face for radio because you don't have to be uh, seen. Yeah. See, Barbara, you can teach Paul slang and he'll teach you idioms. There you go. <laughs> New segment. <laughs> right. Slang with Barbara. Idioms with Paul. 
<laughs> What's that today, Bob? What are we learning? Okay. Do I have anything else? Ooh, okay. Okay, last thing. Last thing? Oh, no. Did I talk about chili yet? I didn't. Mm -mm. So there's a chili cook-off. Ooh. Uh, this is every year. I'm pretty sure the, the cheerleaders win, like, all the time. Yeah. I know that we won once. I mean, not we. I'm not the cheerleader anymore, unfortunately. But when I was a cheerleader, we did win. Uh, anyway, Westcon's annual homecoming chili cook-off mm. uh, on the 20th of October. Sedex will be providing all of the ingredients. If you're interested in participating, please contact Angie and let us know by the 12th, October 12th. Prizes will be given out for the winning chili. And who is sponsoring that? Does it give an email for Angie or anything? Yeah, or? Angie is Angela.V-I-A-N-E-S at Sodexo.com. I think Sodexo is just doing it. Oh, Sodexo, okay. Yeah. yeah. It's on and Sodexo they supply the Instagram. ingredients? Yeah. So that's pretty good. All you got to do is show up, make chili, and eat it. Mm -hmm. It's great. <laughs> All right, now the last thing I have is Zine. I don't know if you've heard of Zine. They're a new club. Well, I did hear about They're them. older than me, than Westcom Without Borders. Hmm. Um, so not too new, but I remember like I was forming West Combat Borders when they were forming too, I think. Hmm. Um, they're just a great group of people. They're an art club that encourages social activism. Hmm. So basically you go to their meetings and everything and you can create your art, you know, about social activism and they make a zine, like a magazine. And they meet on Fridays at 5 p.m. in the VPA 145. That's cool. You Friday can, at one at when? 5 p.m.? Yeah. So you can't be uh, employed. Listen, Paul. <laughs> okay, uh, so the next meeting is on October 5th. Yeah, yeah October Friday. 5th. Day after this, this podcast yes. airs. So if you need more information, contact WCSUzine at gmail.com. Hmm, that's perfect. I wonder how many people they have in their club. Um, I don't know. I feel like a lot. There's like a lot of art students. Yeah. And it's a perfect club for art students. Yeah. I mean, as long as you're into social uh, justice, too. Yeah. I mean, I know that, I don't know, I'm not artistic, but, like, I know the, the girls that, like, put it together, and they're just mm. incredible. Mm -hmm. Cool. Um, all right. That's all I got. All right. So, good session. And we'll see you next week, right? Good talk, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> I'll see you next week. <laughs> Thank you, as always, to engineer Pete Puccio and producer Scott Volpe, who make WCSU 411 possible. When you find this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play, please subscribe so you can keep up with all the news about Westcon. After you subscribe, give us a five-star review and leave a comment. You can also reach us on Twitter at WCSU 411. For Barbara Viegas, this is Paul Steinmetz. See you on the next edition of WCSU 411. Thank you.